This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight we start with Fibber McGee and Molly. You know, when I auditioned the show we're about to listen to, there's a scene where Fibber is trying to tune in a radio show. And it brought back memories of my childhood, sitting with my mom and dad and my older sisters, listening to the radio. That big old set that was not just a radio, but part of the furniture. Now, I can't be sure, but I think it was a Philco. In any event, I distinctly remember watching the vacuum tubes go from blank to a small glow, with that glow becoming stronger and stronger. And there might have even been a crackle or two before the show came on. Then it was time to listen to Jack Benny, or another favorite of the time. In fact, we well might have listened to tonight's show, Fibber McGee and Molly and the episode Uncle Sycamore's Radio Show. The title characters were created and portrayed by Jim and Marion Jordan, a real-life husband-and-wife team that had been working in radio since the 1920s. Fibber McGee and Molly followed the adventures of a working-class couple, the habitual storyteller Fibber and his sometimes terse but always loving wife Molly, living among their numerous neighbors and acquaintances in the community of Wistful Villa. I think we'll get a kick out of tonight's show, and who knows... Maybe a few memories of sitting in front of your own radio back in the day. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Presenting Fibber McGee and Molly in their first program of their ninth year for the makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat. Written by Don Quinn with music by the King's Men and Billy Mills Orchestra. of you hearing Fibber McGee and Molly regularly in your living room, realize that this program is also being heard by a great many of your boys out there in service, way over in Africa, in India, New Guinea, Guadalcanal. It reaches them by means of shortwave radio, and I can tell you it's a thrill to read the letters that come in from them occasionally. Like these few lines from one of our fighter pilots in the South Seas, written after a furious air battle, quote, for a time it was tough going, they never stopped coming. Then tonight... We turned on the radio and heard Fibber McGee and Molly. I wonder if you understand how much their humor meant to us. For a little while, we could forget. It was like a blessed interval of sanity in a siege of violent madness, unquote. And another boy wrote, it bridges the gap of thousands of miles, forming a link with our homeland, unquote. We on the show and the makers of Johnson's Wax are grateful for these letters. They raise an obligation that we do not take lightly.
I bet you if you had an uncle who was a historical character, and he was going to be glorified on a radio program in exactly 11 and a half minutes, I bet you you'd be pretty excited, too. And that's why there's so much to do and hey, hey, and oh, boy, and whatnot around 79 Wistful Vista tonight as we meet Fibber McGee and Molly. What time is it, Molly? What time is it? Oh, we have ten minutes yet, McGee. Sit down. Calm yourself. Well, gee whiz. Heavenly days, it's only a radio program. Yeah, but gee whiz. It's going to be all about Uncle Sycamore who fought in the Indian Wars and got scalped and was a hero and knew Kit Carson and Buffalo Bill as well as I know you. Better, even. How could he know them better? Well, you're still a mystery to me. Oh. <laughs> How you can make our ration points come out even every month has got me baffled. What time is it now? What time well, it's is it? still nine minutes before the program, and stop biting your nails. Well, gee whiz. Hadn't you better turn on the radio and let it warm up? I don't dare. I worked all day getting it fixed again, and I don't want to turn it on before I have to. What time is it now? Oh, hey, what time calm it? yourself. Huh? Calm yourself. You're as jumpy as a 1912 movie. <laughs> <laughs> What did your Uncle Sycamore ever do that he was such a hero? What do you mean, what did he do? Why, he was one of the greatest characters ever knew in the Wild West. I ever tell you about the time he won 14 buffalo hides, a barrel of corn meal, and a mule from Kitty Carson in a wrestling match? <laughs> you mean Kit Carson. This was Kitty Carson, Kit's sister. <laughs> My Uncle Sick. Hey, what time is it, Molly? We what have time seven is? minutes yet before the program. Oh, gee whiz. Incidentally, McGee, uh... Where is your Uncle Sycamore now? Last I heard of him, he was trying to get into the Marines. The Marines? Yeah. Why, your uncle must be 90 years old by now. Yeah, that's why he picked the Marines. <laughs> he read someplace they were the oldest branch of the service. Oh. <laughs> hey, I guess I better I can turn on the radio now, Yes, huh? go ahead. Anything okay. to keep you from hopping around like a cricket on a hot sidewalk. Well, and I that. hope this radio will work. Huh? We can't use the car radio in emergencies anymore, you know. Why not? No car. Oh. <laughs> Let's see now. Station WBJK. That's 567 on the dial, isn't it? Well, it was before you fixed it. Heaven only knows where it is now. Well... Don't you know it's illegal to change the wavelength of a station without the government's permission? It is? Oh, my gosh. Don't tell anybody, then. I don't want to... Hey, it's almost time for the program. Listen. There. I think that new tube I put in is going to work swell. I didn't know you could buy a new radio tube. I took one out of the sun lamp. <laughs> it was just as good. This is station WBJK, the happy station. Oh. The following program was given earlier today and transcribed for presentation at this more convenient time because the man who runs the turntable at the studio found some worms in his victory garden and had to go fishing. <laughs> Stand by, please. Come on, Molly, over here by the radio. What for? I'm comfortable sitting right here. You heard him telling us to stand by, didn't you? Gee whiz. Presenting the winning of Wyoming, or the half-pint man in the ten-gallon hat, featuring that... Oh, oh, now what's the matter? Oh, my gosh. Hey, get your hand off the floor lamp, Molly. The radio don't work when anybody's touching any metal in the room. Oh, dear. Give me a screwdriver or something. I'll fix it. Must be a wire loose. Give me a hairpin. Oh, give me a match. Give me anything. I'll see if... Oh, McGee, there's somebody at the door. Well, tell them we don't want any. Tell them we're not home. Tell them we lost our coupons and starved to death. Uh, I gotta get this thing fixed quick, but... Oh, let me see. Oh, dear. Come in. Oh, Abigail Luffington. Hello, darling. How do you do, my dear? I'm Mr. McGee. Oh, hi, Uppy. Excuse me, but the radio just went Republican on me, and I gotta get it fixed quick. <laughs> oh, Republican? <laughs> he means it can't decide whether it's gonna run again or not. Yeah. <laughs> 
What's on your mind, Abigail, dear? Well, I read in the Whistler Vista Gazette, my dear, that there was going to be a radio program tonight about Mr. McGee's Uncle Sycamore McGee. I just wanted to tell you to listen. Oh, how could we hear anything anyway with people ringing our doorbell all night long? Why? I never saw it fail. You tried to hear something special on the radio, and what happened? Everything. That's what happened. McGee, mind your manners. Oh, he's a little excited about his Uncle Sycamore on the radio, Abigail. Oh, then you knew about the program tonight. Oh, indeed we did. We've been waiting all day to hear it. Look, will you two chatter faces pipe down a minute? You got me as nervous as a twitch. (laughs) Just about had this thing working. All right, McGee. Look, Abigail, won't you sit down here and listen to the program with us? Oh, no, thank you, my dear. It's a Wild West sort of thing, I believe, and I simply can't stand all the shooting. My... My first husband was shot, you know. Oh, really? Yes. Practically all the time. (laughs) What's the matter? Well, Abigail was just saying that she couldn't listen with us, dearie. Shooting makes her too nervous. Oh, it does, eh? Oh, well, I... Hey, I got it. I believe. Listen. And as the dying rays of the sun pave the trail with gold, these hardy pioneers looked about for a place to make camp for the evening. They had traveled 20 miles from Fort Dodge, and as the peaceful campfires... Oh, I was afraid of that. I can't stand it. Let me out of here, my nerves. Oh, Oh, my gosh, there goes the radio again. Up, he slammed the door too hard. Give me another hairpin, quick. All right, but... McGee, where did you get that horse pistol? In the desk drawer. I had to get that old horse out of here some way, didn't I? I was just shooting blanks anyway. fixed again. How much of the program have we lost? Only three or four minutes, McGee. Uh-huh. But even that is disheartening. Yeah. You know, sometimes I wish the radio had never been invented. Huh? And then when I think how we both like to eat regularly, I'm glad it was. <laughs> sure changed people's way of living. There was a time when everybody used to gather around the piano and sing the old songs. Now they gather around the radio and sneer at the new ones. <laughs> oh, here we are. 
and on into the beckoning west uh-huh. rumbled the covered wagon. On and on into the promised land of golden grain and grains of gold marched the hardy Argonaut. What's an Argonaut? Search me, lady. I just read what they give me. Oh. <laughs> Suddenly the wagon train is halted. Indians, a shot is heard. In the distance, and riding like the very wind over a nearby hill, comes the intrepid scout and Indian fighter, Sycamore McGee. Yes, rest the dead. Quick, Molly. Give me a stick of chewing gum. Give me another hairpin. Oh, quick. Fix it quick, McGee. It's just getting exciting. I will. All it takes is just a little bit. Oh, my goodness. Come in, come in. for the love of my... Hi there, kids. Say, there's a radio program on you ought to be listening to. (laughs) Tell about a fellow named Sycamore McGee. Yes, yes, we know, Mr. Oldtimer. We know. We've been listening. Ain't listening now, daughter. What'd you shut it off for? Oh, kind of. We didn't shut it off. The radio has gone haywire. Haywire. Oh, haywire. (laughs) Hey, be quiet, will you? How can I hear what I'm trying to do? What's the matter with it, daughter? Paul McGee's been tinkering with it all afternoon, Mr. Oldtimer. He thinks he's regular Marconi with cheese. Is Bessie home yet? Yeah, she is, daughter. She... I got her. I got her. You got Bessie? Why, you little home wrecker? No, uh, no. He means he got the radio fixed. Yeah, listen. The wagon train was saved. Ah. Due to the heroic... Well, glad you got it fixed, Johnny. No, you didn't want to hear it on account of your uncle was mentioned in it. Now, why is it so time? Oh, don't mind me, daughter. I kind of like these Russian programs. On the surrounding hills, we I'll run up and put on a shower cap. <laughs> what happened on the program, McGee? I didn't hear a word of it. Well, me either, but I'll have it fixed again in a jiffy. It's only that it just takes... Oh, for heaven's sake. Keep working, dearie. I'll get it. <laughs> 79 Whistle Vista, Molly McGee speaking. Good evening. This is a radio survey. Is your radio turned on? I don't know, dearie. Hold the wire. McGee, is the radio turned on? It's turned on, all right, but nothing comes out. Thanks. Huh? I said thanks. For what? Never mind. Huh? Hush! Hello, radio survey. Yes, our radio is turned on. Thank you. Will you please answer these two questions? What is your name, and what is your favorite radio program? My name is Mrs. Fever McGee, and... Thank you. Never mind the other questions. <laughs> Who was it? A radio survey. Wanted to know if we were listening. What is this, a convention? We ought to put a newspaper and cigar stand in here. Come in. Mr. Wilcox. Hello, Molly. Hello, Fibber. I want to... Now, look here, Junior. We've been trying to hear a radio program all evening, and I've had about all the interruptions I can take. I know exactly what you want to say, and we've all heard it many times, and we can forego it this once, so what do you say you point your well-pressed pants toward the great outdoors... Hey, will you keep quiet? Huh? Why, Mr. Wilcox, what is this? This is a very important thing, Molly. First, let me introduce Miss Claudette Colbert. Miss 
Colbert, Mrs. McGee, and Mr. McGee. Oh, how do you do? I'm sure. How do you do? Oh, hi, sis. Now, look, I don't want to be rude, but I'm trying to... Hey, will you be quiet? I'm in a fibber. <laughs> Go ahead, Miss Colbert. We'll let you get back to your radio program in just a moment, Mr. McGee, but I would like to give you a message first. You go right ahead, dearie. Now be quiet, McGee. Oh, okay. What is this? <laughs> Mr. McGee, you're an American citizen and probably pretty proud of it. You and I and all of us are proud to belong to a country which was founded on liberty and grew to greatness within the four worlds of the four freedoms. But freedom does not come free. Freedom must be paid for in blood and tears and courage and sacrifice. Our government has started its second war loan drive. It must raise $13 billion in the next three weeks. That means an average of $100 apiece for every man, woman, and child in America. It means we must all buy war bonds now and keep buying them up to and beyond what we all thought was our capacity. We're not giving up anything when we buy war bonds. We're keeping something. We're keeping faith with the men in our armed forces. And we're keeping alive our faith in the cause for which we're fighting. I think we can make 13 billion a very unlucky number for the Axis, don't you? Uh, I, I sure do, sis. Thank you, and good night. Come on, Mr. Wilcox. <laughs> Isn't she a pretty thing, McGee? Yeah. Say, I've seen her around someplace. (laughs) Is she that new kid that works at Kramer's Drugstore? (laughs) McGee, that was Claudette Colbert, the movie star. I thought I'd seen her face around somewhere. What? Claudette Colbert? Sure. Oh, my gosh. And here I was. Oh, gee whiz. Call her back. Hey, Wilcox. Wilcox. Hey, Junior. You see? That's what you get for never listening to introductions, McGee. Well, gee whiz, if Wilcox hadn't mumbled his words, I'm a... Hey, the radio, we're missing the program. Now, listen, don't get so jittery, McGee. We haven't missed but a minute or two. Hey, I got it again, I think. Well, they sick him all, McGee, with a bullet in his chest. Oh, heavenly days, they got Uncle Sycamore. Why, they couldn't have. He had eight kids after that. <laughs> There was sadness around the campfire that night. Sycamore McGee, the great scout and daring leader, was dying. Oh, sure. <laughs> the bells in the ancient churchyard of the settlement were softly tolling. Mm. Lousy sound effect. Sounds like our doorbell. It was our doorbell. Huh? It is? Or a... Oh, hey, the radio is off again. The doorbell must have short-socketed. Or short-socketed. Socketed. Oh, shut Short-circuited. That's what I said. Oh, dear. Come in. Hi, mister. Hi, Miss McGee. Oh, it's you. Yes. Hey, mister, can I please listen to Winifin with Uncle Win on your radio? Can I please, mister, can I? No, you can't, sis. I'm sorry. Our radio's not working right now, little girl, and anyway, we're trying to hear a program ourselves. Yeah. So run along, sis. Hey, where's the glue, Molly? Oh, never mind. I got some scotch tape. Go on, sis. Now, don't bother me. I got trouble. Well, gee, mister, I gotta listen to when I'm in with Uncle Wim on account of I sent him a dandy question, and if he uses it, he's going to send me an encyclopedia, and if I get one, I'll let you ride on it. <laughs> let me ride on what? My encyclopedia when I get it. Look, little girl, an encyclopedia is a book. Yeah, you're thinking of a velocitude. <laughs> 
Velocipede, McGee. Go on. Velocipede is a bug with a hundred legs. No, that's a centipede, I betcha. Centipede my clavicle. Centipede means temperature. Fahrenheit and centipede. No, dearie, that's centigrade. Well, then what's a velocitude? Yeah, I don't know, mister. Well, what do you want to win something if you don't even know what it is? That's ridiculous. Now beat it, sis. We're trying to hear a program. We're not bothering you, McGee. Go ahead and fix the radio. What was the question you sent in, little girl? Well, it was a poodle, Miss McGee. A what? A poodle. You know, that's a riddle you can't get through your noodle. Oh. <laughs> it was, why was Gone with the Wind so popular? Oh, all right. Well, why was it? Tell us and scram. Because Gone with the Wind was Southern, and Southern is a movie actress, and actresses make up. And you can't make up unless you're mad at somebody. And somebody's anybody, and that includes you. And you is a letter. And a letter needs a stamp, and a stamp is red, and so is the Red Cross. And the Red Cross has a lot of ladies, and the ladies are all knitting Afghans, and boy, that's some yarn, and so is Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Sing everybody every payday. Give a great big lusty cheer. Buy your victory rat traps here. If a dime or a dollar make the axes holler and the rats will disappear. Everybody, every payday, buy up on the USA way. That's the job, it's up to you and me. You don't get that radio fixed again pretty quick, McGee. It won't be any use. The program will be over. I know, I know. I'm working as fast as I can. Now, let me see. The peanut tube goes on the left of the static illuminator. Ah, here we are, Mike. Halting into the saddle, Sycamore McGee rode again. 
I thought he was dying. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle Sycamore always was an easy bruise with a quick heel. <laughs> As the thunder of his hoofs died away in the distance, a sinister bronze face, beady-eyed and cruel, peered through a thicket at the pioneer children playing poker for arrowheads among the wagons. <laughs> then, as a cloud obscured the sun, a faint sound was heard. Those kids aren't playing poker, they're playing knock rummy. That was a knock rummy on our door. Huh? <laughs> and the radio's off again, too. Oh, well, if this isn't the dog, why can't people leave us alone? That radio won't No, you trying to fix it now till whoever it is leaves, McGee. That's Come that's in. Buenas noches, senora. Hello, mister. Oh, it's Rosita. Hi. Hello, Rosita. We haven't got much time to talk now, dearie. We're trying to catch a program. And I do mean catch. It bounces. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is all right, Mrs. McGee. I just want to leave you two tickets to the fiesta, the... Um, oh, you know, they celebrate tomorrow night at the Whistle Vista Auditorium. Oh, see, sí, senor. <laughs> oh, you took the word right out of my mouth. But it's okay. I was through with it. <laughs> uh, what's the celebration for, Rosita? Tomorrow is Pan American Day, senora. Oh. It is to celebrate how North America is good neighbors with South America. And to tell everybody that if we stick together, nobody's going to get stuck. <laughs> Our company, Johnson Wax, uh, does a lot of business with South America, mm -hmm. sis. Most of their raw material comes from down there. Yeah. Oh, that is fine. I think if North Americans were knowing South Americans good, and South Americans are knowing North Americans good, yeah. there will not be any North or South Americans. No? No. There will just be Americans. Oh, mm -hmm. wouldn't that be wonderful? What part of South America are you from, dearie? Oh, well, me? Oh, well, I'm from Peoria. You know that. <laughs> didn't mean you. I meant Rosita. Oh. oh, I started out to be a baby in Mexico. <laughs> but I have traveled all over the countries in Latin America. And every place I go, I like it better than someplace else. Well, that's great. And thanks for the tickets, Rosita. We'll go to the celebration. And you know what? No. What? Well, the way you've traveled around and all, it's nice to know we can look at you and see a real Pan-American. Oh, muchas gracias, señor. And it is nice for me to look at you and see a real American pan. Adios, amigo. Riding, 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 riding into the purple Listen, sunset. McGee, the door slammed, knocked the radio it on again. It was a tense moment as Sycamore McGee, the last of the great plainsmen, thundered into the Indian encampment. One lone white man against a horde of hostile savages. Oh, boy. Watch yourself, Sick. Be quiet. Then a piercing sound sliced through the stillness. You certainly fix that radio, McGee. It stops every time the doorbell rings or door slams or anybody touches the floor lamp or the wind blows from the east. Well, it'd be all right if people would leave us alone. Give me another hairpin. All right, here. Come in. Hello, Mr. Wimple. Hello, Mrs. McGee. Hello, Mr. McGee. Hi, Wimp. Excuse me while I work on this on radio. Oh, I hope you get it fixed, Mr. McGee. There's a program on about your uncle, Sycamore McGee, and I came over to tell yes, you... Yes, yes, we know, Mr. Wimple. We've been trying to listen to it. Were you listening to it yourself? Oh, no, Mrs. McGee. I don't like to be near the radio at this time of the evening. Huh. The bedtime stories are always on, and... Sweetie Face likes to curl up in my lap and listen to them. Curl up in your lap? I thought she weighed about 180. 185, Mr. McGee. <laughs> but she's still just a little girl at heart. Ah, oh, is she really? Yes. <laughs> he 
you should see him take me by one hand and one foot and use me for a skipping rope. Mr. Wimple, I think your wife is a pretty cruel woman. Please, Mrs. McGee, you are speaking of the woman I... I... Love? Well, <laughs> that's a pretty strong term, Mr. McGee. Let's say that I admire her. And I really do. She has some wonderful qualities, she says. You know, one of these days you're going to get fed up with all that mistreatment, Mr. Wimple, and I shudder to think what will happen then. I got even with her yesterday, Mrs. McGee. I had about all I could stand. So when Sweetie Face was sitting out in the backyard, I sneaked in the house and got my big jackknife. Oh. Yes. And I held it behind my back and tippy-toed out in the yard. Yes, yes. And then I sat down close to Sweetie Face. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. And you know what I did? <laughs> I beat her four games of mumbly pain. Oh, dear, I'm glad you didn't... Hey, be quiet. I got the radio going again. Listen. And that concludes the saga of the winning of Wyoming. Oh, but as a special surprise for our listeners, we have in the studio with us the hero of these great exploits, that hardy old plainsman and Indian fighter himself, Sycamore McGee. Heavenly days, McGee. They've got Uncle Sycamore himself down there. Shh, quiet. We're going to ask Uncle Sycamore, as we call him, to say a few words to the radio audience. Oh. I think, Mr. McGee, if you move this floor lamp a little closer to the... No, no! Don't yeah. touch the floor lamp, Mr. <laughs> starts our ninth year on the air for Johnson's Wax. You've been swell, and everyone connected with this show wants to thank you again for your loyalty to us and our sponsors' products. We may not be so sophisticated, but we're glad you like our polish. Good night. Good night, all. The characters of the old-timer and Wallace Winkle heard on this program were played by Bill Thompson. This is Harlow Wilcox, speaking for the makers of Johnson Wax Finishes for Home and Industry, inviting you all to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. This program has reached you from Hollywood. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Stay tuned for Inner Sanctum next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Jack Webb to star as Sergeant Joe Friday in Dragnet and the episode The Spring Street Gang that was first broadcast in 1949. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the 
story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes, best of long cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to Juvenile Bureau. A rash of crimes has broken out in your city. Suspicion points to an organized gang of juveniles. Your job, stop them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Sunday, March 27th. It was windy in Los Angeles. We were working a night watch out of Georgia Street Juvenile Bureau. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way up from the Juvenile Bureau, and it was 11.25 p.m. when I got to the receiving hospital, room 5, the treatment room. Everything happens on Sunday nights, huh, Joe? Yeah. How's the kid making out, Doc? One arm is cut up badly. Nothing fatal, though. How'd it happen? That's what I'd like to find out. Can I talk to him? If you want, don't press him, though. He's had a bad shot. All right. <laughs> Officer here to talk to you, son. I can't. Tell him I can't talk, please. Just a few routine questions, son. You're going to have to answer them sooner or later. Please, can't you see what's happened already? I can't tell you anything. Jack Monroe, is that your real name? Yeah. How old are you? I'll be 16 next July. Where do you live? I can't tell you. You know that. Now, let me alone, will you? Let me alone. You've been running around with that gang of kids on Spring Street, haven't you? The big timers, isn't that what they call themselves? I don't know anything about it. Believe me, I can't talk. You tipped us off about the burglary they were going to pull tonight. Is that where they knifed you? Look, will you believe me? I can't tell you anything. Not anything. Please. <laughs> He's still shaky, Joe. All right, Doc. Well, Jack, we'll talk about it later when you feel better. You see what they've done to me already? They said next time they'd kill me. Juvenile Bureau, Friday. Yeah. Yeah, okay, friend. Goodbye. How'd you make out, Joe? Not very good, Ben. Captain Bowling, come in yet? You checked in while you were gone. Wants to see us. Okay. Did kid tell you who knifed him? No, I scared him good. He wouldn't tell me a thing. You got a line on the boy's parents, Friday? I got a hold of his father. He's on his way in. How's the boy? Bad knife wounds. Nothing fatal. You know the boy? Not till this afternoon, Captain. He tipped us off about a burglary a gang of young kids were supposed to pull tonight. You go through? No, but two hours ago, this Monroe kid was found in a vacant lot down on Olympic, cut up pretty bad. The gang must have pegged him. How long is it going to take you to break that up? Well, we're just starting to get a line on him, Bob. Must be nearly a hundred in that gang. And everyone of them working hard. Take a look at the pin map over here. The spot here, look at it. All the jobs pulled during the last month, huh? The last five weeks up to date. Red tabs for burglary, must be more than a hundred. The robberies, green pens, count them, at least fifty. 
There's five more orange ones I added for the weekend. Auto thefts. You bet those kids are working hard. We've got a lead on them. That's more than we had last week. You have to push it harder. Here's the big reason. This uh, line of pins, on and black. Purse snatchings. Purse snatching and rape. 26 of them in the past five weeks. They're pretty well concentrated in one area here. That's right. Now, what's the lead you're working on? Right there on the pin map, Captain. Huh? Well, these two blocks here, Bob, where Franco Alley intersects Spring Street. What about it? Well, it's the only clear area for a dozen blocks around. There's not a colored pin on it, you see? Yeah. Now, all the rest of the pins, the robberies, burglaries, attacks, they all seem to branch out from this same spot right here in definite patterns, Franco Alley and Spring Street. You figure that's the focal point for the gang? Well, it's got all the marks. For instance? Well, we've been checking that neighborhood for a week. We got it narrowed down to one place. Right on the corner of Franco and Spring. What is it? It's a soda fountain. It's pretty typical. Only it stays open all night and it gets a pretty good play from kids. A regular hangout, Captain. Pretty tough youngsters. None of them over 18. Who runs the place? Guy named Eddie Ramsey, small-time con man. Had a run-in with him when we worked bunco detail. I remember the name. Smart mouth. Tried to give us trouble when we talked to some kids in there last night. He's got a place set up for him in the back of the store, kind of a club room. It sounds like a good lead. What are you doing about it? Well, just a minute. Captain Bowling. Yeah? Who? Yeah, we'll be right down. Monroe kid, his father's downstairs, cursing every one of us. What's his problem? Can't understand how his boy got into trouble. Come on, Ben, let's tell him. What kind of a city do we have when we can't allow our children out on the street without being stabbed or shot? What's our great police force doing when this is going on? I'd like an answer if you got one. I demand an answer. We got an answer for you, Mr. Monroe. Will you sit down? My boy's lying in there in that hospital bed, cut to pieces. What did you do to prevent it? Tell me. You tell us, Mr. Monroe, what you do to prevent it. I'm no cop. That's your job. I pay my taxes and I help pay your salary. We look out for your kids, but we don't raise them. What are you talking job. about? Just a minute, Mr. Monroe. Answer me this. How old is your son, Jack? He's 16, I think. Why? You know what he does with his spare time? Where he spends his nights? Of course I do. He's at home. Some nights he goes to the library. Then you don't know much about your son, Mr. Monroe. For the past month, four nights out of five, he's been hanging around with a gang down at a soda fountain on Spring Street. He's down there as late as 2 a.m. He says he goes to the library. How do I know? I'm a busy man. Did you know that your son is mixed up with that gang? He's not mixed up with that gang. A bunch of small-time thieves, but they're growing. They started with purse snatching, breaking in parked cars, burglarizing candy stores. You don't know what you're talking about. Wait a minute, please. Then they took up robbery, stealing cars, beating up girls, women, attacking them. You're crazy. Jack's not that kind. He's part of that gang, and right now we hold all of them responsible. My boy wouldn't do anything like that. He's a member of that gang, he told us. They're the ones that knifed him tonight. That's a lie. Jack's not mixed up with anything like that. You believe anything you want, Mr. Monroe. We're going to protect your boy as much as we can, but don't expect us to raise him for you. Now you better take a free piece of advice. You keep your advice. Jack's not in this. You can't prove he is. We're not out to prove anything right now. But you catch up with that boy of yours. Keep him off the streets before it's too late. Are you threatening me? No, sir, advising you. Next time we might meet at the morgue. One AM Monday, March twenty eighth. A detail of fifty officers from Juvenile Bureau and Metropolitan Division were deployed for sixteen blocks along Figueroa Street. At five minutes past one, they started to move south over an appointed area. In the space of half an hour, 18 young kids, none of them over 17 years old, were picked up off the streets and brought to the second floor at 1335 Georgia Street, the Juvenile Bureau. Four of the youngsters were girls. At 1.45 a.m., Ben and I checked the soda fountain on the corner of Franco Alley and Spring Street. Same bunch, Joe. Business as usual. Yep. 
Come on. Hey, Teddy! The Bulls! They're back again. Same guys. Go back and tell Eddie. Hey, look, why do you guys have to keep tracking us, huh? You'd think we were crooks or something. You were here the last time we checked in, Teddy. You ever go home? Sure, when I'm tired. I ain't tired. Uh, what's the matter? That's your money on the table there? Sure, it's my money. You want to borrow a buck? <laughs> $28. That's a lot of money for a boy your age. You keep pretty late hours, son. You have to go to school in the morning? Maybe. I can sit here, can't I? It's free country. I'm drinking coffee. You gonna make me on that? <laughs> You've been drinking more than coffee. Where's your driver's license? Oh, every time the same thing. <laughs> there. March 10th, 1933, 16 years old. Hey, giving you trouble, Ted? Eddie's on his way out. What's your name? Jones. Clyde Jones. Huh, Ted? <laughs> sure. He's got money, too. Rich family. <laughs> you can save the smart talk, boys. Any of your pals in the back room? Yeah, what's the trouble now, Sergeant? How many times a week do we get a check up? Go ahead, Eddie. Read them off. We told you the last time, Ramsey. Clean up your place here or we'll ride your back till you do. I told you the last time, Sergeant. There's nothing wrong with my place. It's almost 2 o'clock in the morning. You got a dozen underage kids hanging around here doing nothing. Some of them have been drinking. Schoolboys. Better to have them in here than hanging around outside in the street. I keep an eye on them. You're not the guardian, Ramsey. This time of night, they've got no business in here or on the street alone. It's your opinion, huh? That's the law, Ramsey. Now, either you shut down that back room and keep these kids out of here late at night, or we'll go after your license. You don't scare me, Sergeant. <laughs> you can't prove a thing. A couple of these kids have juvenile records. They're on probation. We can tag you for contributing. You still don't scare me. Now, why don't you leave the kids alone? That's right, Eddie. Read them off. Ben, get Benson and Bell. Right, Joe. If you won't clean up your place, Ramsey, we'll do it for you. Yeah? What are you going to do? We're pulling these boys in, all of them. Two twenty-five a.m. Monday, March twenty-eighth. The dragnet operation had netted thirty juveniles, twenty-six boys, four girls. Twenty-four of the children were between the ages of sixteen and seventeen. They were lodged in the assembly room at the Georgia Street Juvenile Bureau. The other half dozen were thirteen and fifteen-year-olds. They were taken to the juvenile hall at thirteen sixty-nine Henry Street. At two forty-three a.m., we met with Captain Bowling. All checked in. Thirty of them. All right. In the morning, we filed petitions to have every one of these cases brought to the attention of the juvenile court. Make a note of it. Okay, Bob. For the kids with records, ask for detention from the probation department. Right. We'll call their parents in the morning. Call them now. They've got some explaining to do. By 6 a.m., all but three of the children's parents had shown up. To most of them, it was nothing new. Their kids had been there before. They'd be there again. They took the lecture from the juvenile officers calmly. As long as it didn't mean trouble for them, they wouldn't worry. When they got their children home, they would reprimand them. Not for running the streets, but for being picked up by the police. Ben and I had seen the cycle of the young criminals start before, a hundred times over. It had a lot of different endings, most of them sour. During the next week that followed, we booked an average of a dozen juvenile delinquents every night. The clampdown continued, so did the crime wave. Ten burglaries, four robberies, eight car thefts, six purse snatchings, three assaults on women. One week's work. Picked up a new angle on Ramsey today, Captain. He might be fencing for the game. Who gave you the tip-off? One of our informants. Ramsey's brother lives out in the valley. He's supposed to be pushing his stuff. You checked him out? Yeah, I couldn't get a thing on him. Well, it might explain what attracts the kids to that soda fountain. It explains those $20 bills the kids are flashing. They steal and rob, and then they sell the loot to Ramsey for nothing. Now, another thing. Ramsey keeps his place open all night, and there's no reason to. He doesn't get that much trade. It's only from the young gang that hangs around there. You question the kids. How do they account for having all that money? Well, most of them say Ramsey lends it to them. They say they pay him back a little at a time. 
I think he's fencing for the kids. Did you try to get his license? No luck, Captain. We can't prove a thing against him. And we'll do it the hard way. Sweat it out. That night, we drove out to Ramsey Soda Fountain and asked him again to clean up his place, to keep the young kids out after 10 o'clock at night, to stop lending them money. He refused. There was nothing we could do. His business was a public place. He could not be held responsible for any of his patrons. In the next 10 days that followed, Ben and I haunted the sidewalk outside the soda fountain. We questioned every youngster as they entered and left. We made more than a dozen arrests. Many of the kids had been drinking heavily. We found some of them under the influence of narcotics. But Ramsey was still in the clear. The crime wave continued sporadically. Ben and I waited for our chance. It was a long time coming. Thursday, April 14th. We had dinner at Johnny Coken's place, and it was 10.35 p.m. when we checked back in at the office. Hot shot. Grab it, Joe. Yeah. A terminal on Market Street, a 459 and shooting. A terminal on Market Street, a 459. Let's go. He was approximately 5 feet 4 inches tall, 125 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes, slight build, fair complexion. He was wearing blue jeans and a corduroy jacket. We found him between a row of packing cases at the rear of the warehouse at Terminal and Market Streets. There was a single bullet hole in his forehead just above the left eye. There was a thirty-eight revolver near his right hand. The watchman told us how it happened. She broke in the back of the warehouse, Sergeant. She wanted to shoot it out with me. Here's his ID card. Fell out of his pocket. Teddy Cameron, age 15. Dear God, a kid. I didn't know, Sergeant. He didn't either. He thought he was grown up. Police Department, Form 311, Dead Body Report. Type, gunshot. DR number, 437-695. Victim, Theodore Cameron. Residence address, 960 Charter Street. Date and time of death, Thursday, April 14th, 10.35 p.m. Place, Terminal on Market Streets, South State Warehouse. Cause of death, gunshot. Motive or reason, attempted burglary. Time discovered, 10.40 p.m. Removed to County Morgue. Discovered by Carl Hyber, night watchman. Identified by Barbara Cameron, sister. Description of victim, male, Caucasian, age 15, height, weight, so on and so on. Occupation, student, descent, English, and was a witness, signed Joe Friday, serial number 2288, age 15. Ready, Joe? Hmm? And Cameron Boy's sister, she's waiting in oh. the next room. Yeah. Now, let's go. She taking it hard? 
Yeah. Morning, Miss Cameron. Good morning. We won't keep you long. Just a few routine questions. Yes, all right. Miss Cameron, how many are there in your family? There were three of us. Teddy, Mike, and me. Mother and father are dead. I work. Teddy and Mike go to school. I mean, Mike does. How old is your brother Mike, Miss Cameron? He's 14. You're the sole support of your two brothers? Yes. Do you have any idea who the boys were your brother Ted used to run around with? I don't know them by name. I remember seeing a couple of them once or twice. Mike would know, I think. He and Ted were pretty close, brothers. Do you know if Ted mixed with a gang of kids down on Spring Street? Maybe Mike would know that. Sergeant Teddy wasn't a bad boy. He wasn't a bum. None of us are. I tried to raise the boys like you told me. It wasn't easy. We made out. Yes, I understand, Miss Cameron. My salary didn't have too much, but we got by. Yeah. I figured on getting married. I'm 31. Be good for the boys, especially Teddy. He's dead, isn't he? Yeah. Couldn't be in two places at once. Hold a job and watch the kids. That's why I thought maybe a husband. I'm sorry to press, Miss Cameron. Do you think your brother Mike can tell us about that Spring Street gang? No, Mike could know. Where can we find him? Staying at a friend's house. I got the address in my bag. Here. That's two five one four. I don't write numbers too well. Thank you, Miss Cameron. You've been very helpful. I'll get somebody to drive you home. Oh, do I have to go? Would it be all right if I just sit here for a while? That's all right. I'm tired. Real tired. 2514 West Serrano Street. That was the address Barbara Cameron had given us. It was the home of Mr. and Mrs. Jean Brewer, high school friends of the dead boy's sister. We talked to Mike Cameron. He told us that his brother Teddy had been running around with a gang down on Spring Street. He identified Ramsey Soda Fountain as the hangout. It was 2.25 p.m. when we got back to Georgia Street Juvenile Bureau. Hi, guy. Juvenile Bureau, Romero. Yeah, hold on, I'll call. You, Joe. Thanks. Friday. Joe, this is Canfield in burglary. Yeah, Homer. You're working that Cameron case, aren't you? Yeah. I've got a report on one you might be interested in out of the same neighborhood. Distillery prowl. What do you got on it? Looks like a juvenile M.O. They got away with seven cases of scotch whiskey. Expensive stuff. Okay, we'll hop on it. Ubeck Warehouse, Crocker at 7th. Miss Elizabeth Rice was the auditor in charge at the Bubeck Warehouse. We located her on the mezzanine office row. It was her job to keep a running inventory on all incoming and outgoing liquor stock. She knew her job well. As you know, Sergeant Friday, each and every bottle of distilled spirits carries a United States internal revenue stamp. Yes, ma'am. Each stamp carries a serial number together with the name of the firm to whom the stamps are issued. Well, Miss Rice, and the stuff is missing, the stamp on each bottle carries the case number. Is that right? That's right. Now, what did I tell you? Oh, yes, I have it right here. Seven cases of high-grade blended scotch whiskey. Now, I have a bottle identical to those in the missing cases. Yes, I see. Now, if you'll just look here. Yes, ma'am. The number on this stamp here, 368-227-9956, followed by the firm name. Uh, could you give us the numbers of the stolen cases? Yeah, I have them typed out for you right here. 
seven cases, twelve bottles to the case, Canada Dry Incorporated, four of the red label and three of the black label, Johnny Walker. All right, thank you very much, Miss Wright. And you think that this might be a juvenile case, Sergeant? Yes, ma'am, we do. Seven cases, that's close to $600, isn't it? We've lost a great deal more than that, Sergeant. The insurance company makes up for the liquor loss. Yes, ma'am. Those youngsters, who makes up for them? Ben and I left the Bubeck warehouse with a list of serial numbers of the seven cases of stolen liquor. We headed back for the juvenile bureau. We figured that there was a strong possibility that Spring Street Gang was responsible for the warehouse liquor theft. How were they disposing of the stolen property? That was the key question we had to answer. Ben and I had a hunch and a tip from an informant that the young gang was operating under the guidance of a fence, a man or woman whose job it is to dispose of stolen property. The gang members were close to Ramsey at the soda fountain. Ramsey, the logical suspect. All right, now suppose they did steal the liquor. Suppose Ramsey's a fence. What's he done with the stuff? I don't think he's turned it this fast. He's turned it at all. He wouldn't keep it at the soda fountain, no liquor license. And we've been around too much. He wouldn't keep it in his house. He lives in the rear of the fountain. That's too hot. Only leaves one other location that we know about. His brother's place in the valley. It was five minutes to ten when we turned left off Ventura Boulevard onto Sepulveda. Ramsey's brother had a small farm about a mile and a half off the highway. It was a modest white frame house planted squarely in the center of an acre of ground. An unpaved driveway led off to the left of the house to the garage. Pull up here, huh? Yeah, okay. Yeah, it looks kind of quiet, no lights. Let's go. Mud sticks to everything. Now, where's the doorbell? Oh, here it is. You got your flashlight? Yeah, what? Here's a note somebody left. Oh, it's on the bum again. Here, I'll strike a match. Okay. Can you hold it a little closer? Can you read it? Yeah. Harry, wife and I have gone to the drive-in theater. Before you put the truck away, get three... Can you hold that match closer? Oh, no, wait a minute. Yeah, get three cases out of the garage and take them into town. Ed is waiting. Please try to make it by 11.30 tonight. Let's see, it's signed George. The address is here. And there's a garage. Yeah, come on. Three cases. Could be eggs, Joe. If it is, we wasted a trip. Oh, I'm out of matches, Joe. All right, here, use mine. What was that? Checking. Come on. See anything? No. There goes the light. Just a minute. I'll strike another one. You can save your matches. We found it. We found five cases of scotch whiskey on the floor of the garage. We checked the serial numbers against the warehouse list. They matched. We went back to the car and called communications. We had an immediate stakeout placed on George Ramsey's place, and then we headed back to the city. It was 11.20 p.m. when we got to the address we found on the note. It's about time, Harry. Hello, Ramsey. We can do without the music. What's your problem this time? Hey, you're almost out of scotch, Ramsey. Serial numbers check out, Joe. Sorry I can't offer you a drink. You're too old to drink here, aren't we, Ramsey? Where's your phone? You want to invite somebody? You can see we're out of booze. You got a phone? In the hall. Then call the office. Yeah. 
All right, what's it all about? We've been out to your brother's place. What happened to the other two cases? You drink them here? I gave it to the kids. You look at me like that for, Sergeant. Anything wrong, Eddie? Party's over, kid. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 5th, 1949, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 74, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. Edward and George Ramsey were tried and convicted in Superior Court of receiving stolen property. After serving their terms as prescribed by law in the state penitentiary, they will be returned to the county jail where they will serve a one-year term for contributing to the delinquency of minors. You have just heard Dragnet, a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the Office of Acting Chief of Police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Honoring the city of Greenwich, state of Connecticut, and the men who make up the Greenwich Police Department, another of America's great law enforcement agencies. One of these men, Chief John M. Gleason, FBI National Police Academy graduate, who dedicates his life to making yours more secure. Fatima Cigarettes, the best of long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet from Los Angeles. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's George Burns and Gracie Allen, followed by Escape. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.